0: for you here, like, spoiler alert, this is kind of the the position um, from Scripture that the Word of God has been kept over 2,000 years and beyond through the faithful preaching of the Word of God by the people of God. Pastors preaching, people hearing and receiving the Word of God that this has been the means that God has used to pass down the word from generation to generation. We have a written record of the word of God, but we understand that it's not enough that we have it. And this is is a big deal because, and I want to say this, a lot of King James-only churches preach from maybe... 40 or 50 texts ever, ever, right? And so entire sections, there are books of the Bible that will never, never be preached in churches that are King James only, never even be opened for a church service, for a preaching service. And that kind of neglect, more than anything else, leads to a loss of the words of God. Because it starts with a failure to value the word of God. And then, from there, it becomes, that isn't really needed. There was a man who came to our church, and he came to me and said, Pastor, he said, it's just your preaching, he said, it's just so... He said, it's so doctrinal. Why does it have to be so doctrinal? He said, it sounds bad to say this, but it's almost too biblical. He said, like, yeah, that's horrible, right? That biblical preaching. What have we come to when we have biblical preaching from our pulpits? Because, yeah, I mean, you know, the job of the pastor is supposed to be to find a passage that will preach. That's how um, it was said when I was in college, like, that will preach. Guys read it and they're looking for that one that they can make a fancy outline with. Right? And so we're not preaching the whole counsel of God concerning all things. We're not. So there are entire segments of the Bible. You know, the minor prophets that only get preached when it's one of those sugar stick texts. Right, but there's never a breaking down of this is what the prophet was saying. This was his message. Why did Nahum preach to the Ninevites? I've heard people say before that, well, you, you really can't hold the world to the law of God. Because they don't believe it anyway. And then I ask, so why did Nahum preach to the Ninevites? They were pagans. They were not even welcome in the temple. So why preach to them? Why did the minor prophets spend time and energy preaching to the Edomites, to the Egyptians, to the Philistines? Why? Why? But again, in in the average independent Baptist church, there's never even a um, thought given to that. And I say that that is the biggest danger to the preservation of the Word of God. Right there. We can talk about all the um, textual issues and we're going to. We're going to get into the textual issues. We're going to get into um, uh, uh, the controversies and so on. And I'm going to try to break them down for you in ways that you can understand. But understand right off the bat that what God has done is to commit his word to his churches and our responsibility is not just to fight for a version of the Bible our responsibility is to preach the Bible to God's people so that you get it and believe it and see what a treasure we have now just think about this okay, think about this that if if we don't, I'm sorry, my mind just went blank. I, it, it was a good thought too. Okay, hold that thought. Don't think about this because it's like, air it's like that big cloud over the guy's head and it's empty. There's nothing in it um, at all. Uh, but whatever it was, it was good. It was juicy in the moment. I've forgotten. So let's go on to where we were. Uh, 1 Peter three fifteen. but if I carry along That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul calls it here, the pillar and ground of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can open the word together. Thank you that we have the word to open. Uh, What a a blessing, what a treasure that is to us. I pray that we would understand why we hold the position we hold, why we use the Bible that we use. That our people would believe this and agree to it. And uh, I pray that there would be unity in our church on this issue. Where many are trying to divide us. I pray that uh, we would uh, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I pray that uh, we as a church would remain committed not just to the King James Version. But also to the word of God itself. I pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I think what I was going to say is that um, there's almost an obsession with upholding a version of the Bible while there's very little concern given to preaching that word. You know, we have a reason for having the Bible. This is what I was going to say. I I know now. Now I'll forget it because I'm talking about it. When we preach through a book of the Bible, doesn't that Bible, doesn't that book become more meaningful to you? Don't you feel like... You're more confident with that book when you read that book later to, to understand what is happening. Do we not come across passages like this, Lord willing, this Sunday, uh, we'll preach from 2 Samuel chapter 10. And in 2 Samuel chapter 10, it's, it's like a flyover country. It's, it's one of those passages that you fly over on your way to the story of David and Bathsheba. Right? Chapter 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. But of course chapter 11 is not like in isolation it just it doesn't just drop in you know from nowhere there's context. And 2 Samuel 10 gives the context. It's actually interesting that 2 Samuel 11 takes place in the middle of 2 Samuel chapter 10. It's like you're looking at this whole story and then you know one of those things where they put the box around a little part of the story, and then they zoom in on that, and that's what Second Samuel eleven, when David commits adultery with Bathsheba. That's how that works. And I I have to say that I, I know for myself, like when I preach a book of the Bible, I just I know that book so much better. And that's what I'm talking about. When we say that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, this is the sense in which we mean it. Yes, it's important that we maintain the right version of the Bible. Absolutely. I, that's, I'm going to say that. All right? But it's far more important that we know what that book says, what that Bible says, that we believe it, that we. Uh, go through it and know it and that's the way that the word of God is maintained so the church, you know really I'm, I'm calling on the church to be what God intended us to be and that is the pillar and ground of the truth the pastor once told me on the issue of preservation he said it would be easier if we would just only recognize He said. <clears throat> I understand why he said it, all right? This pastor that said it to me was, probably was a Ruckmanite, at least was the closest (coughs) to a Ruckmanite of anyone I've been close with. But, you know, if we wish to be biblical, then Ruckmanism isn't really available to us. But I have encountered this same kind of thinking many times, many, many times. Over the years. There are between 5,000 and 6,000 extant manuscripts of the Greek New Testament alone. Between 5 and 6,000 of them. And no two manuscripts are identical. No two. The Hebrew Old Testament has far fewer actual manuscripts, but those manuscripts differ from each other far less than the Greek manuscripts. The Masoretes were the tradition keepers. That's what the the Masora means, tradition. So the Masoretes were the tradition keepers. A sect of Jews who labored in the 6th through the 10th centuries to preserve the text of the Hebrew Old Testament partly because of their interest in maintaining the Hebrew language itself. According to the website, myjewishlearning.com, in traditional Jewish thought, every single letter of the Torah is to believe to be the direct word of God. So great care was taken by early copyists to preserve the text perfectly. That, by the way, would fit with what Jesus said when he said that not one jot or one tittle Uh, would pass from the law until all was fulfilled. Christ was promising a very detailed keeping and preserving of the very words of God in Scripture. There is, the Masoretes established painstaking rules and customs for copying and preserving the text of the Old Testament. With the result that very few Variants exist in the text that survive. In fact, there's very little debate over the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. It's pretty on both sides. Uh, When it comes to textual criticism, the uh, textual critics uh, themselves will acknowledge um, the reliability of the Masoretic Hebrew text. (laughs) Most of the debate regarding the Old Testament has to do with uh, some minor differences in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, when they were discovered, and it's a sad thing, but it's the reality. uh, What has really caused this debate is the idea that archaeological discoveries open up certain passages of scripture for further review. Um, so that if a there's a future um, Dead Sea Scroll discovery, or Dead Sea Scroll type discovery, uh, that the, the idea is that then we ought to go and re-examine certain passages of scripture, which, by the way, is absolutely wrong and absolutely false. Um, the Word of God should not be, is not up for grabs, not at all. Uh, So uh, that's uh, I'll clear that up. I I say that the Dead Sea Scrolls are really a wonderful archaeological discovery. Someone in Sunday school um, one time someone asked me, so you're against the Dead Sea Scrolls? How can you be against the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know, I don't understand that. Uh, I don't believe that the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls opened up the possibility that some of the Old Testament should be discarded. I, I, there's no reason to think that whatsoever. If you understand anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, then you should understand that. The debate is over the text of the New Testament. Now, I'll say that this is, in the grand scheme of things, a very recent debate. The debate really took off in the mid-1850s, so less than 200 years ago, with the rise of textual criticism. And the core of the debate is over the authenticity of certain words and passages of Scripture, and more importantly, and this this is really the crux of the debate, is how the authentic words of God are to be identified. That is really what the debate is about. James White has argued that it's like having a 10,000-piece puzzle with 100 extra pieces. White believes firmly in the authority of the critical text and textual criticism, and that it is the job of scholarship to find and eliminate the extra pieces, given his analogy. So he's saying we've got this 10,000-piece puzzle, We've got a hundred extra pieces. We've got to figure out which ones don't belong with the puzzle, all right? Now, on the contrary, we would argue that we have a 10,000-piece puzzle, and Textual Criticism took a hundred pieces out of it. A hundred pieces are missing from it so that we'll not be able to complete the puzzle, all right? So this is really the debate and the debate is over, because in the, uh, the critical text, which is today the uh, Nestle Aland, I think they're about to publish either 28 or 29, um, the 28th or 29th edition of that, um, and there are fewer words than in that text than in the received text, the textus receptus. And so it's just an automatic, foregone conclusion that the Texas Receptus must have too many words then, because it's assumed that the critical text is the right text. Um, So let let me just give you a couple things right off the bat. First of all, God's people believe in a settled word. We don't believe the words are out for grabs any words are up for grabs. We don't believe that it's debatable. We believe that God's churches have settled on his word. And that from generation to generation, that word has been accessible to God's people. And that uh, the text that has been handed down is the text that we should use. Um, so that's that's our position Essentially, uh, obviously, there's a lot of nuance to that that we'll get into. I don't believe that textual criticism is entirely without merit. Textual criticism, to me, is, is much like um, biblical archaeology. The value of biblical archaeology is that it goes into places and it verifies, it serves as a verification of witness to the historical event described in the word of God. And biblical archaeology has been amazing and done amazing things to uncover places. You know, the place that stands out in my mind is what we would call Hazor. I think that in Israel they call it Hazor. Um, but it's um, Hazor is, was the um, capital uh, of Jabin uh, who Deborah and Barak defeated in battle. It was a key city In the north of Israel it was right along the trade route and back in that time um, those trade routes controlling those trade routes was essential and Joshua went into Hadesor and burned the city with fire the Bible tells us and archaeologists have uncovered um, the walls and stones authentic I mean dating back to that time that uh, were the the rock is cracked from the fire, and the only way that it could then crack that way would be because of the intensity of the fire uh, from it. So that kind of thing is wonderful. It serves as a witness to the truth of the Word of God. Similarly, I would say these 5,000 texts, uh, you know, um, I think I just read um, Geisler and Mix uh, in their book on textual criticism. They argue that uh, there's less than 1% difference between all five or 6,000 texts, manuscripts of Scripture. It's really staggering when you think about it. And what staggers me is that when there's that little difference, that there's this much heat and fire over what the authentic words of God are. I'll say this. To you that to me, as I see it, the value of textual criticism is to serve like that biblical archaeology as witness to the confidence we can have in the Word of God. It demonstrates that it is that we can be confident in it. But also I want to say this again. I, I don't know how many new manuscripts or old manuscripts, I should say, were discovered in the last couple of years, but there's a constant discovery of ancient manuscripts, and I, again, insist that every time we discover a new manuscript, we should not be going back and saying, okay, now we need to re-examine, you know, John 3.16 to see if that's the authentic Word of God or not. Now, I say John 3.16 is it's you know, any textual critics are watching, they're going to scoff, like, oh, that's never been under question or under review, and that's exaggerating. And I've had people tell me that as we've discussed and hashed over and debated on this issue. Nonetheless, if any of it is up to scrutiny, open to scrutiny, it is all up to scrutiny. It's not like <coughs> we can carve out and say, well, we would never reexamine that right there. Given a significant archaeological finding, discovery of ancient manuscripts, the scholars would feel obligated to do that, because that's what scholars do. So again, I'm saying to you that we should not approach the Word of God this way. Now, <clears throat> the textual variants in the manuscripts have, they are the cause of, Of this thorny debate. So understand that. Now, Peter Ruckman and his sword decided that since it's impossible to identify with certainty which words in the Greek New Testament are authentic, that God must not have intended for those to be the settled words of Scripture. So, in other words, since there are five to six thousand Greek manuscripts. No two of them identical. Therefore, we should throw it all out. And so, what Rutman taught, and what many Independent Baptists have embraced, is the idea that somewhere around 1611, and guys come at it different ways, but around 1611, God gave His word as a settled, final word in English in the King James Version of the Bible all right now I say this first nothing in Scripture would make us think that that would happen nothing in Scripture would make us think that 15 1600 years after Christ ascended to heaven that there would be an entirely, that the Bible would be given in an entirely new language. Rather, what we see in Scripture is an expectation that the Word of God would be, number one, a promise that the words would be kept, and number two, an expectation that those words would be translated into the languages of the people. From generation to generation and that this would be an ongoing thing as the gospel is spread that the word would be translated into the heart language of the people where the Bible is being preached so I can I can sympathize there are many many Christians who say Pastor, it's too complex it's too difficult you and when you get into it, I know this because I have debated this for 15 years online. I've debated with, I have defended the King James position online in many different places for 15 years. I have gone on Twitter and done the same. And Twitter, like you get mobbed on Twitter um, if you say the wrong thing. Um, but I, I'm not afraid. I'm not, I'm not shrinking. I'm not cowering. I'm not backing down. I I believe that it's an important, important issue. Alright, but I'm just going to say this, the reason many have gone the Bruckmanite route is because it's just easier. It's just simpler. To say, we have the Bible in English, that's all we need to know. But again, and I asked this question, I had someone call me up the other day, um, who was a little upset with me, but wanted to talk about this issue, and I asked him, I said, um, I said, why do you believe that the King James is the right version of Scripture? I said, do you believe that it's the right version because you believe it just dropped down out of heaven out of nowhere? Or do you believe it because it's true to the standard? And he said, well, I think it's true to the standard. I said, right, exactly. That's the issue. That the standard is the standard. God gave us his word in a fixed language. The Masoretic Hebrew is not really even spoken today, is it? I mean, Hebrew is certainly based off of that and resembles it. Um, but I mean, we were in Israel, our Jewish guy explained to us how back in, what, 1946, when um, Israel moved back, the Jews moved back into Israel, um, that their, uh, do you remember that, is it... Um, Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion, yeah, brilliant man. And he was the first leader of the Jews when they came back into Israel. And the first thing he did was to require everyone who came into Israel to learn Hebrew. And the Hebrew was a modernized Hebrew, but it was based off of the Hebrew Old Testament as well. But what was brilliant about that was. He knew that Jews were coming from all over the world. They spoke all these different languages. And so there would end up being different colonies of, you know, uh, German speaking and Polish speaking and Russian speaking Jews. And so he required a single language because he must have read about the Tower of Babel, right? And realized that you have to have one language. To have that unity, all right? So the Masoretic Hebrew is fixed; it's not changing. It's not a alive a living language; it's a dead language, and so that gives us then a fixed reference point. The same thing for the Koine Greek; it's a dead language, which gives us again a fixed reference point, so that any translation can be compared to the Greek and the Hebrew. So then, obviously, that means that God, we are relying on the fact that God has kept the words that he gave. The <laughs> idea, and this has been said to me mainly by, well, only by people who are of the Ruckmanite persuasion, that in 1611, God moved his word, something along these lines, God moved his word to the English and let the Greek and Hebrew pass into oblivion kidding me, right? Because when you say that, you're saying that God stopped keeping his promise to keep his words. If you believe God promised to keep his words, but then you believe that God discarded the words that he gave, then you're denying preservation entirely. Alright, so I'm on this rant, and this was a very short introduction that I made last a long time. And some of you, I know, you're like, you know, all this church stuff is all new to you, and then I'm up here talking about Hebrew and Greek and languages and all this stuff, and you're like, what is he talking about? I understand. Totally understand, but still, I think it's good for us to hear this. Alright? Now, I want to be more thorough, as I mentioned, with this topic than I have ever before. Alright? So, Uh, I want to really dig in to this topic. So tonight, we're going to look at our church's statement on this issue, the entire position that our church has Um, recently. We have been working through our statement of faith, and we have come up with 16 points that give kind of a comprehensive view of our belief regarding the Word of God. So we're gonna look at that tonight. In part two, we'll consider the transmission of scripture throughout history, and give a biblical view, I believe, of the manuscript traditions. In part three, we'll take a look at the debate over the text of scripture, and particularly at textual criticism. In part four, we'll explain why we're not English-only preservationists. And in part five, We'll give a biblical defense for the exclusive use of the King James Version. Alright? That's what we're going to end with. So let's read through our church's statement of faith, and then I'm going to make a few points, and then maybe we'll get through it tonight if at all possible. We believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. We believe that no prophecy of the scripture is any private interpretation, but that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We believe that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. We believe that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saints faith, life, and obedience. We believe that the only infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. We believe that the authority of the Holy Scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God alone, who himself is truth and the author of all Scripture. And therefore ought to be received and believed by man upon its own authority, because it is the very Word of God. We believe that God's people and churches bear important witness and testimony to the truth of God's word, and that they have a sacred duty to bear that witness faithfully. We believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew, known as the Masoretic Hebrew, and the New Testament in Greek, known as the Textus Receptus, being immediately inspired by God, are kept pure in all ages by a singular care and providence. We believe that in Old Testament times, God used Israel as his particular agent of preservation, and that in this New Testament era, God uses his faithful churches as his agents of the same. We believe that the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come. We believe that a faithful translation will have the correct textual authority, textus receptus only, <coughs> the correct translational authority, formal equivalence, and the correct ecclesiastical authority, faithful New Testament churches, and that it will be accessible to the people of God in our modern age. We believe that the King James Version, or Authorized Version, of the English Bible is a true Faithful and accurate translation, which in our time has no equal among all the other English translations, and that we can, without apology, hold it up and say, these are the words of God. By conviction, we will only use the King James Version of the Bible in all our teaching, preaching, and materials. We believe that the canon of Scripture was established by God and received by His churches, and therefore is not determined by any church council or by any edict of men. We believe that the canon of Scripture includes every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God and has been kept by His own singular care and providence. The canon of Scripture, therefore, is the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments which contain the preserved word and words of God. We believe that the books commonly called the Apocrypha, along with all other extra biblical texts, though they may claim to be equally inspired with the Bible, Have been and must be rejected by the Church, not having been received by God's people, not showing evidence of divine inspiration, and not belonging to the received (coughs) family of Scripture. We believe that when faced with apparent contradictions in the Bible, it is the Christian's duty to faithfully uphold the principle that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore came from one mind, and to strive to harmonize between any apparently contradictory passages. Let God be true, that every man a liar. All right, so let's go through these. Start with point number one. Again, uh, feel free to take notes. We believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. This is a kind of summary statement of everything that we're going to say after this. Um, it introduces what we'll be declaring here. As so we work through the statement, <clears throat> we will establish this point and show all that it implies. We consider the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments to be the only word of God. Let me be very clear about that. There is no further revelation. There's no other word of God at all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. As 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Okay? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And man is to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, as Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We believe that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, but that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's the second point. So in other words, we have no authority over the word of God, and no authority to freewheel in our interpretation of Scripture. Right, The Bible came from one mind, the mind of God, whose mind is internally coherent. Okay? So, in other words, the mind of God, see, see, it's possible for me as it is for you to hold entirely contradictory viewpoints. And not even recognize it. And there are many people who do. That is not possible for God. He cannot. Contradict. Or the Bible says. He cannot deny himself. Okay. you I'm sure you've met people before. Or been in conversation. With people before. Who would dogmatically assert. A certain thing. But then later on. say, you know, like totally ignore what he said in order to do so. So for instance, it's possible for a person to say that it's it's gambling is wicked. It's wicked. Right? And then when they're together with their buddies and they get out, you know, playing cards and deal a round of poker to jump into the game. It's very possible for that to happen. For people to Uh, believe that this is wrong, and then do it, all right? The Lord God does not do that. He does not deny himself. He does not contradict himself at all. So it's our duty, then, to uncover the direct meaning that God had for any passage of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 say, Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Bible is telling us there the reason that the Bible is not to be privately interpretive, okay? It's not well, this is how I see it, and that's how you see it. But God has one meaning. Now, there are a variety of viewpoints and perspectives and, if I can say it this way, interpretive lenses filters that people interpret the bible through that result in very different understandings of passages of scripture that's undeniable but we need to remember that there is only one true interpretation of the word of god only one right now it is our duty to dig into scripture in search of that and try to find it. We don't do so infallibly. Alright? We, we uh, sometimes miss it. And we have to be ready and willing to correct that when we do. Number three, we believe that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Now that's the point Paul made to Timothy when he spoke of the inspiration of Scripture. He wasn't, his point was not to assert the inspiration of Scripture, but rather to point to the inspiration (coughs) of Scripture as the reason that it was able to make Timothy wise unto salvation. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.15. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And that's why he points out that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Number four, we believe that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, life, and obedience. Again, we insist that the Word of God came from one mind, the mind of God, that it is God speaking to man, and is to be received as such. Number five, we believe that the only infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. But this is another way of saying no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. Certainly, there are good and necessary consequences that come from Scripture. There are several points of application for any one passage of Scripture. There may be several different Applications that we can make with that. But with any passage of Scripture, God has one intended meaning, and it's our job to do the best we can to uncover that meaning. And we're saying that the only infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is Scripture itself. There might be other methods of interpreting a passage or examining it in order to uncover its meaning. There's only one infallible rule of interpretation, and that is Scripture itself. God has revealed himself and his mind comprehensively in Scripture. Not exhaustively, because he's an infinite God, it would be impossible to exhaust all that he is. But comprehensively, he has given you a comprehensive picture of who he is and what he wants from us. <coughs> The book of Acts gives a wonderful illustration of the way this works. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15, and I want you to notice a few things here in Acts 15. And this might be where we need to stop tonight. Acts 15. And just go to the beginning of the chapter, because there's a controversy here. The apostles are going to gather in conference in order to settle a dispute (coughs) arose between the Jewish believers and Gentile converts. Now look at verse 1 and 2. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So the various representatives from these churches uh, gathered in Jerusalem, as described in verses 3 and 4. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, when they had done that, then the opposition presented their controversy against the Gentile churches, particularly the church in Antioch. And in verse 5, the Bible says, but there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. In verse 6, the apostles and elders conferenced together to consider the matter. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter, verse 6 says. After, the, after considerable debate as described in verse 7, Peter gave testimony of God's work in saving the house of Cornelius. Look at verse 7. And when there had been much disputed, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us That the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter describes the conversion of Cornelius and his house. They were a Gentile house. And Peter then made a point of application based on the outcome of this particular event, to give the church's direction and counsel in regards to the question at hand. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they, So Paul is taking what happened and then appealing to the churches here. Paul and Barnabas then gave a report of God's work among the Gentiles in verse 12, and then James used the word of God to settle the question, and James sets here an example for us of the way Scripture is to be interpreted. Look at what he said. And after they... And held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. As it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. I love that. But what a beautiful and practical example of the way we ought to handle the Word of God. James is answering the controversy by applying Scripture and interpreting Scripture by Scripture to demonstrate that this Scripture is speaking specifically to this issue and should resolve the controversy for us. Alright, I have a little more time. I got another couple minutes. Alright, hold on. Give me another minute. I think I'll go through number six. See if we can get through that. Because um, we have 16 of these. Number six We believe that the authority of the Holy Scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God alone, who himself is truth and the author of all Scripture. And therefore ought to be received and believed by men upon its own authority because it is the very word of God. Now, that word received is significant in this discussion of the Word of God. It's one of the most important words for us to grasp from Scripture, especially in regards to the discussion of preservation. Because textual criticism argues that the text of Scripture has been corrupted and must be restored. Okay? Um, Bruce Metzger, who is the foremost textual critic in history, um, and really probably did more to establish the foundation of it than anyone else. Um, Bruce Metzger wrote wrote his book, which is called The Text of the New Testament. um, It's Transmission Corruption, and Restoration. That's the title of the book. Alright? The book I'm reading by Norman Geisler and William Mix. Right now on textual criticism. Has a chapter on the restoration of the New Testament text. So textual scholars believe that what they are doing is restoring a corrupted text of scripture. Alright? I have... Said this before online. If you ever just want to have a little fun and like throw a firebomb on Twitter, just go on there and say that textual critics believe in an evolving text. All right, and uh, you'll get you'll get all kinds of fire and heat um, thrown at you from all kinds of angles, you know. But the truth is, they believe the text is evolving. They do. You know what's interesting? But um, the nestle Allen text is the critical text. And the nestle Allen with each new edition um, for the last three or four, have come closer and closer to Sinaiticus each time. Sinaiticus is the old um, discovered by Tischendorf uh, back in the 1800s that really kind of launched into this whole escaping here. And uh, so they say they're restoring it. They're just restoring it back to Sinaiticus. Uh, which is, uh, Naticus and Vaticanus are considered to be the two oldest manuscripts uh, of the Word of God uh, today. And so they just keep taking us back and back and back uh, to that. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that God keeps His Word pure in every generation. So there's a clear contrast with the idea that the text of Scripture has been corrupted and is to be restored by textual critics. (coughs) The Bible teaches not only that God keeps his word, but also teaches that his people receive his word and believe his word. That in fact this is a mark of you being a born-again Christian, that you receive the word and believe it. Now, that does not mean that we receive it uncritically, or that we just take someone's word for it, that this is the word of God. I would argue that this is the reason we should be suspicious of textual criticism. Because, and, and by the way, what we're teaching you here is not to just take someone's word for it, but to recognize that the churches have settled on the word of God historically. And that Prior to the mid-1800s, there was no controversy about it. And so why should there be a controversy now, after all these years? Except that scholars decided that there was a crisis that only they could resolve, which is kind of the realm of scholarship, is it not? Because you've got to justify your existence when you're a scholar. So, somehow after scholars have muddled the waters, muddied the waters, and wrought so much confusion, we're supposed to believe that they're the ones to clear up the questions of the authentic words of God. Now, I'm not anti-scholarship. You all know that, right? Anybody who knows us knows I'm not anti-scholarship. In fact, some would say I'm a little too much pro-scholarship. Uh, maybe so, but when it comes to the authentic words of God we are being asked to put our <coughs> confidence in priestly scholars after centuries of trusting the church and the Bible describes the process of preservation in terms of faithful believers receiving the word of God okay so listen to this from Second Peter 1 verse 19 We have also, listen to what Peter said, a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what? go, Go look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll let you see it for yourself. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to look at the verses before it. Look at verse 17. Of uh, 60. We have not followed cunningly the devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, listen to what he says, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory of This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. So, Peter is talking here about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. He and James and John were standing there. They saw Jesus transfigured, they were given a preliminary glimpse of the majesty of Christ as God on that mountain. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of it. And then, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You know what that means, folks? That the certainty of the word of God is greater than what scholarship can give. We can be more sure even than what scholarship can make us. That's what he's saying. Because if Peter were a scientist, he would say, I observed it. Right? That's what science speaks to. And then he says there's something more certain than that. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time of the will of God, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's what we can be certain of, right there. So, uh, I want to point out to you the word that is regularly used in the New Testament to speak of the way God's people approach God's words. All right? I'll give you two verses. The first one, Acts 17, I'll give you three. Acts 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures, whether the daily, whether those things were so. Notice the word. What do you think the word is? They received the word. They received it. 1 Thessalonians 2, and verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye receive, notice the word again, the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And then in 1 John 5 and verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. Alright? So this is what the Bible teaches. When we approach the Word of God, we are not to attempt to determine the right words. We receive those words from God. We receive them. And we believe <coughs>